It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is Time Enough Podcast. Hello, welcome to Time Enough Podcast. It's where we get into episodes of the Twilight Zone and beyond. This is Matt here. Joining us again from the Mission Log Podcast is John Champion. Howdy. Hey, uh, thank you for having me on this, you know, light, refreshing little walk in the park that is Death's Head Revisited of the Twilight Zone. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm. I mean, I'm a little glad that you put it on the list of ones you would like to do because it's, it, it, it is definitely one to like sick on someone. You know, if I had just been yeah. like all willy nilly putting people on my list, and, and I'm very glad I didn't uh, put you know Charlene Smith on here because that would have been awkward. Because <laughs> 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 she's done a few of these episodes, and you know, if I had just been citing, I probably would have seen the plot and been like, "Oh, Natsu with that name." Okay, let's not pair her with that episode anyway. So. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, no, no, I mean, I, I first of all, it, it's such a good episode. I mean, spoiler before we get to the end of our conversation, it's such a good episode. But I also feel like in you know what we do with Mission Log, where we do take on some pretty heavy topics, um, this felt at home for me. So um, yeah, so I'm glad glad to do it. Thank you yeah. for letting me request this. <laughs> and and I'll I'll open up the Trek doors on this. I think people that are a little into Twilight Zone tend to also be into Star Trek. They kind of yeah. go hand not 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 necessarily go hand in hand, but they often do. They, and uh, they they overlap in many ways. Yeah, and, and we'll definitely get into uh, Deep Space Nine Galdicott because he's like Mickey Mouse compared to uh, the fellow in this guy uh, in this, Boy, in no this episode. <laughs> but no still, kidding. obviously, yeah. some you know universal trues or you know some character beats that are are similar yeah for real let me do a bit of the trivia for this one yeah the original air date was november 10th 1961 and the script is a serling we are close to the end of director don medford's run in the twilight zone this is his fourth episode out of five Oscar Beringi Jr. played SS Captain Lutz. We've already seen him in the Rip Van Winkle caper, and his claim to fame is as mobster Joe Kulak on TV's The Untouchables. In the context of this episode, it's probably worth noting that Beringi's father was a Hungarian Jew. Um, I I think that, especially in the 60s, when it was an especially touchy subject, I I guess you usually cast people of Jewish descent as your uh, Nazis just as a... You know, yeah. like, like, yeah. like we get it, you know? Yeah. Or right. Making it, make, you know, that that's signaling that's probably worth doing. Yeah, exactly. The specter of the Holocaust, Alfred Becker was played by Joseph Schildkraut. He was known for mm-hmm. playing Otto Frank in stage in the 1959 film version of the diary of Anne Frank and won an Oscar for his supporting role in 1937's the life of Emil Zola. Chances are the drama of this episode distracted you from the fact that this camp might look a little bit off. 
The set was actually <laughs> repurposed from a Frontier Fort set that had been recently constructed on the MGM backlot for a failed TV Western pilot. It was just collecting dust there by this point. It cost almost $2 million in today's money to build, which uh, would have been 200000 at the time if you don't trust my math. So, <laughs> And my math was looking at Wiki saying $1.6 million in 2016 and thinking, yeah, okay, that's enough inflation to say almost $2 million. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you have a bit of a tome today with the, the prologue, so... Uh, which you, you have, do. have on your own computer. So, <laughs> all right. Well, <laughs> away, we, away we go. Mr. Schmidt recently arrived in a small Bavarian village, which lies eight miles northwest of Munich. A picturesque, delightful little spot, one time known for its scenery, but more recently related to other events having to do with some of the less positive pursuits of man human slaughter, torture, misery, and anguish. Mr. Schmidt, as we will soon perceive, has a vested interest in the ruins of a concentration camp. For once, some 17 years ago, his name was Gunter Lutze. He held the rank of a captain in the SS. He was a black uniform strutting animal whose function in life was to give pain. And like his colleagues of the time, he shared the one affliction most common amongst that breed known as Nazis. He walked the earth without a heart. And now, former Captain SS Captain Lutz will revisit his old haunts, satisfied, perhaps, that all that is awaiting him in the ruins on the hill is an element of nostalgia. What he does not know, of course, is that a place like Dachau cannot exist only in Bavaria. By its nature, by its very nature, it must be one of the populated areas of the Twilight Zone. Okay. My first thought is, um, Judgment Nuremberg was 62 was it? I, I, I Sounds about... to double check that. I'm trying to figure out yeah. chronologically if it came before or after this, because uh, there's definitely a reference or, you know, similar vibe between the two. Um, yes. Yeah. And, it, you know, I was kind of thinking about the context of this being 1961. Uh, obviously, Judgment in Nuremberg was um, pretty... Yeah, a pretty, pretty heavy representation of what actually went down in the popular culture. Of course, people followed the Nuremberg trials as they were happening. But in the pop culture, you know, I feel like immediately after World War II, there were a lot of rah-rah pro-America movies, let's celebrate the heroics. And it takes time. It takes something like this 10, 15, nearly 20 years later to really be reflective about what happened and get a little more at the the ugly heart of what was going on there. Um, so that's where you start to see shows like this, scripts like this, written by and performed by people who felt this acutely. But then I, I would also venture to say that a script like this probably would not be shot today, probably would not be made today. No, yeah. I mean, you'd have to have like a committee on it, but uh, whereas yeah. this is, I mean, I, I know Serling had his, his run in with, you know, uh, sponsors and stuff, like trying to edit what he was doing, but this one seems to come pretty good. I definitely wrote a few lines, I guess a few more lines mm -hmm. of dialogue than I usually do from this one. Um, 
Yeah. First, I, I have in my notes the fun synchronicity. As, as soon as he said something like, I used to be a soldier, like in my head, I just say, you, were, you never were a soldier. And then uh, uh, you know, Becker says it on screen. I was like, okay, that's that's on the nose. Yes. <laughs> and, yes. Uh, I, I love it when a script, like you think something and then the script just instantly says it. Yeah. Um, well, that, it, this is a script where there there is no subtext at all. I mean, everything that happens, every line that is spoken every action that's taken like everything is spelled out for you like the characters say exactly what they mean and that's it's really rare to see that today because you always tell actors to play the subtext and what's on the page isn't always what's on screen but with this there's something really refreshingly straightforward about how this is written um oh and by the way i don't know if you looked up judgment at nuremberg but it did come out in 1968 I think the U.S. release date on that. Ooh, uh, it's ooh. sixty-one, December fourteenth. Sorry, sixty-one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this episode did actually come out first, but uh, Predated maybe. It. Yeah, I, I Not imagine by much, there might have been a few people, you know, behind the scenes that might have known each other and uh, oh, shared a few sure, tidbits. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, and again, any of the Nuremberg trials started. I, I think they started in nineteen forty-eight. I can't remember if they when they wrapped. I mean, they took years, but. Uh, um, it, it was obviously something that was on people's minds and it, it takes that time then to be reflective and put that in context and particularly put it in this kind of emotional context that we have in in this episode yeah a couple of the other quotes i wrote in here um one thing i think definitely would not be scripted this way a few years later is um lutz are kind of like coming out with a uh, Lutz, excuse me, coming out with a I have a dream speech that that feels weird now. Yeah. And you know what? That that moment feels odd, it, like like the glee that he has in reflecting on the good old days when he was the, the captain at this uh, at this concentration camp. But then it has to be followed by what follows it, which is all the accusations from Becker and saying, you're a sadist. And I'm I'm glad he used that word. And I'm glad that he, uh, you know, again, like, like no subtext at all. Here's a guy walking into the situation, enjoying the nostalgic thrill that he gets from it. And he needs this ghostly presence to point out. It's like, no, you weren't a guy doing a job. You weren't a guy who was just a soldier. You were somebody who was there enjoying what you got out of it. And yeah, and Lutz does have this, um, he is, uh, he's celebratory about what he thought uh, the Third Reich would bring. Like it took a second time watching this that that the first couple scenes where he's just going around the camp by himself and reminiscing once you've seen the episode once that becomes way more disturbing because you start to notice the glee he at first i mean the yeah. first time you watch it you're like okay he's just like the good old days but we haven't really gotten down what the good old days are until we get through the trial so yeah when you watch it a second time it's like like He's so much more evil the second time you watch it. I mean, yeah, the first time he's for real. already ridiculously, you know. And and that's the, the the worst thing about this episode. It's not a mustache twirling villain. People in Nuremberg did respond this way on the stands, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people did have to rewrite 
their own personal histories because you can't be the villain i guess that's the thing you could do the worst right. things ever and you have to try and rewrite your past to not be the villain yeah well, well yeah uh, going back to that point you know the first time you watch it you go wait why would anybody go back to the ruins of a concentration camp? Why? Because this is before a lot of these places as they are now that have become really important memorials to what happened. But this is 1961. This is before that happened. Um, and, and you're just sitting there going, why in the world would this guy go back there? But then it unfolds in front of you. Like you said, that second time around makes it even more sinister really disturbing to see and then the, the, that little like it's a little bit cheesy but that little flashback where you see the young version of lutz kind of over his shoulder wearing the ss uniform and the smile on his face while he's barking out orders um how, how twisted is it that that was where this guy feels like he peaked Right, because even a few years later on TV, it's like that little thing. It's like, well, now let's make a Colonel Clink and have a good laugh at it, you know, yeah. instead. Yeah. Whereas it's like, no, that's not, it's not, I mean, it's on the surface. If you have no context, I guess it's funny, but because of the context, it's not funny at all. Yeah. Well, and you know what? That I, I think that is a perfectly good way. Like, we all have to deal with this kind of horror and historic trauma in different ways. And you can do this really disturbing piece like today's episode. You can also do Hogan's Heroes and deal with it that way. I think that is a legitimate way to, to kind of process that history. I mean, um, before we knew about the atrocities of what was happening at the camps, you, you know, you had to be or not to be, or you had the great dictator, or you, you had these other things that were making light of not not making light of the fascist regime, but they were trying to poke holes in it with humor. So good for them. And I feel like this gives us a little taste of that, but it also adds to the sinister nature of Lutz by, by letting the audience be uh, uneasy at his happiness being there, in his mind being there. I mean, I guess that's a, you know, shield crowd as an actor. I mean, we keep talking about Lutz and, Osperingi is quite good at that, but Shield yeah. Crowd as Becker is just like once he shows up, you know the the key turns in this episode. Yeah, I uh, he's great, and and everybody who's on the other side here, everybody who is sort of the the ghostly image of the victims in the concentration camp, but Becker is the the mouthpiece for them. He's so grounded. He's so still. He's so precise in his words and his movements and clearly directed that way because this is a stylistic piece. It, it can't help but be a stylistic piece. It has to be. Um, but I, I do love him in it. And I, I love how that is also reflected in the directorial choices because a lot of what happens from the director is very straightforward. You're moving your actors from point A to point B to have a conversation or have a memory, have a confrontation. But there are a couple of places where you get thrown off a little bit, whether it's Lutz like turning from one direction, having a conversation with Becker, turning around and Becker is just in the other place. He's just sort of like teleported like a ghost, you know, he's just standing there. 
same kind of deadpan expression on his face, still carrying on the conversation. So a couple of moments like that are very effective. And then when Lutz runs to grab him, put his hands around his neck, and it's that jump cut to him grabbing a, a you know a pole or the the post in the in the yard there. Um, this episode isn't heavy-handed with that kind of thing. It's not trying to give you a jump scare. It's just there to make you feel uneasy, like you're on the same path of madness with Lutz. But yeah, uh, sorry, back to your original point. <laughs> uh, uh, Becker is a fantastic role in this and, and he has played perfectly. I've got two more quotes. The first one sounds like something I would have written, but I put in quotations and I watched it again. So I know the first quote is you didn't kill them hard enough. Uh, it was a pretty uh, wild line. I mean, is yeah. Like what does does that mean if he was more horrible, he wouldn't have like that slight bit of guilt in his conscience coming back in this way? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I thought about that line too because it, it was, I to me, the interpretation of that is that if Lutz had any sort of, um, if he had not been part of this mechanized death regime where it was so easy and so industrialized to dispose of people, um, that you, you, you literally could hit a button, cremate somebody's remains, and then they're buried in a shallow grave. And you don't think a second about doing it the next time and the next time and the next time. And I feel like my interpretation of Becker's line is, is that if that had been harder to do, if that had rested on your conscience at all, if you had to... Um, if you, if you had to deal at all with the one-on-one -on -one inhumanity of taking somebody's life, then maybe we'd let you rest. But we're not going to because it was so easy for you to kill one or 10,000. Didn't matter to him. I mean, he reminisces directly in Becker's face, like, oh, when we used to string you up over there, it's like, eh, you might. That's awkward. I mean, yeah. I can't imagine even if you had done that i can't imagine bringing it up like that but yeah <laughs> that's yeah. where this guy is um Oof. the other one i i quoted which to me is uh, well just the standout line of the episode that's where i'm like this might be one of serling's best scripts uh, yeah. at least dialogue wise yeah. is uh this is not hatred this is retribution this is not revenge mm -hmm. this is justice and uh yeah yeah. Uh, uh, it, again, like like you said, just another great line in what is a, an incredibly powerful script, and and I think that line needs to be in there because when you do a show like this, it could come across as looking like revenge. It could come across as looking like hatred from the people who were victimized i mean I, I i would hope that nothing would come across that way uh but i i think it's necessary to kind of put the emotional button on where they're coming from because justice wasn't always served yes the nuremberg trials did happen but there were people who got away and there were people who weren't tried who maybe maybe should have been so we i i feel like we as the audience particularly the audience in 1961 watching it for whom this is very recent history and probably touched a lot of their families, they would also want to be able to look at this and say, 
yeah, it, it, it's not about revenge. It, it's about knowing, feeling like there is some sense of justice against something that was so utterly unjust and inhumane. And numbers, it's, it's a weird thing, I guess, with humans. Like, what can we accept for an atrocity? Like, yeah. if, say, um, there's a a murder in a house or something, you know, that gets the news and everyone's yeah. like, oh, that person needs to be brought to justice. Whereas if you're responsible for the, you know, deaths of thousands, tens of thousands and, and millions yeah. in the long run, but I'm, I'm going to stick with this one guy and say it's probably yeah. a couple thousand, right? Suddenly it's like, we can't comprehend that. Like the idea of justice becomes like not quite as clear weirdly because it's too big to consider. Well, it's like Captain Picard telling Kevin Uxbridge, you know, we don't have a punishment to fit your crime, <laughs> you know? Uh, so it, it, ever since this point in our history, and of course, you know, not to be outdone by, uh, you know, the Stalin regime and uh, Pol Pot and other places where there have been mass killings, you know, um, it's not just about bringing the perpetrators to justice. It's also about trying to contextualize and wrap your minds around how this can happen so that it doesn't happen again. But then I just pointed out examples where it happened again. So we can't help but uh, but want to study this and try to understand as best we can too. I'm going to go on a slightly weird route and go back in time. For some reason, I just had flashed mm -hmm. my mind, like, you know, the Aztec things where they mm -hmm. would march hundreds of prisoners, basically prisoners of war up the pyramid, you know, rip their heart out and throw them down the other side. Yeah. And in their mind, they were doing it so the sun would come up the next day. Right. I mean, right. that's, but that's yeah. just as bad, but they yeah. don't. I wouldn't have, and they might even have glee like I'm making the sunrise, but they have a different motivation. And I don't know if that's a right. you know, humanity's evolving and, and, yeah. and these are really bad growing pains because, in a way, that's kind of worse. But at the same time, they mm -hmm. thought they in a really twisted, you know, um, mythological state of mind, they thought they were doing the right thing. I, right, right. Did this, did Lutz think he was, I mean, did he ever think he was doing the right thing? <laughs> yeah, I, it's that, oh man, I mean that that gets to the heart of it all, doesn't it? It's like you know the the Nazis on one count they kept incredibly meticulous records and they put this industrial scale killing machine into place. It, it became part of how that Reich worked, right? But at the same time they engaged in propaganda to prevent other people from knowing that. So they, they knew that what they were doing was wrong, but they also were sort of making this just like so much other business. It's just like the collateral damage to get to the goal, to get to the other end. So I, I don't know, you know, that those seem like contradictory things, but um uh, but I guess they're both, I guess they're easy to do when you dehumanize another population, but then you realize that you are also on the world stage, you know? Um, 
Yeah, I'm saying these things, and again, I'm I'm just sort of reinforcing how difficult it is to understand, how difficult it should be to understand by any compassionate, right-minded people. Well, let let's take it um, thirty years ahead, because uh, of course, just to lighten things for a few minutes, uh, you did the deep dive <laughs> through Deep Space Nine. They have Goldicott, yeah. which basically is our sci-fi metaphor yeah. version of um, of Lynn's great, great, let's, excuse me, great acting, yeah. great character, great show, but yeah, is it too milk toast? That, like you said, this episode <sighs> is so direct. It's like, yeah, I mean, they there's an episode of DS9 where they kind of intimate, like, they have what Major Kira and kind of flirting with each other. We'll have a little bit of fun, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, he's in many episodes, so you can't just have you can't do this for years at a time and really have an entertaining show of any kind but right that would be too hard to watch yeah um yeah i mean you know it was one of the things that i i definitely can give credit to deep space nine for is using that cardassian regime as uh an analog for the nazi regime or you know you could insert other historical regimes like that but clearly they were drawing a lot from world war ii history as they fleshed them out and Goldicott, among many other Cardassians that we met, and I always reference the episode Duet, where we talk about Goldarheel, but we don't actually meet him. We we meet one of the paper pushers who kept those good records. Um, but there were, you know, among many who were treating the Bajorans the same way. But you watch an episode like this and you go, okay, it wasn't just that there was a commandant Lutz. There were many like him and there were many above him in the chain of command. And there were many below him in the chain of command who just carried this out either without a care in the world, or maybe like as reflected in a guy like Lutz with a certain kind of joy, this really twisted sadistic kind of joy I don't know that we ever got that out of Goldicott. What we got was him using the machinery of war to his end. But the twisted thing about Goldicott was always wanted the people that he was subjugating to also like him. And that that was a really bold character choice uh, for the writers to apply onto him as well. That's you know, where I, I was. I think, yeah. yeah, that's where I was kind of trying to get with here. Like, the, I think the thing that definitely threaded those two characters in my mind is they wanted to be loved by their victims like yeah yeah Lutz seems surprised that he's up for a trial he's like oh i remember you let's reminisce and he's like that's not what we're doing man yeah <laughs> you know? yeah yeah this is not the good old days yeah but 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 just the very fact that he sees that as the good old days like it, it's so utterly twisted and, and that's where an episode like this is completely fascinating to me because you, you've heard me bring it up every now and then on mission log, but it, it, it's such an interesting idea to me where people end up after not just what they've done goes away, but their entire worldview goes away. Um, you know, there, there were many Nazis who were tried at Nuremberg many who committed suicide, many who were put to death uh, for war crimes. 
you also had a lot of rank and file soldiers who were just out there on the front lines fighting other soldiers. And yes, they were part of the regime, but they weren't doing this. Then you have guys like Lutz and either, you know, again, people above or below him in the chain of command who use this excuse like, well, I was just following orders. I, I was just doing what I was told to do. It wasn't my call. It wasn't my fault. Well, what happens? What what happens then if they somehow escape punishment and justice after the fact? Where do they go? What What is their life like a year later or five years later or 20 years later? You know, you spent, in this case, Dachau was open for 12 years. So imagine somebody spent 12 years of their life living, eating, and breathing this regime. Like that is their worldview. That is how they see their lives, their careers. And then one day, thank God, it's all taken away. It's all over. And if you live to see another day past, you know, past the allies liberating these places or past the Nuremberg trials, what do you do with your life? Who are you after that point? You know, some of these guys escaped to South America, which is what they said happened to Lutz, but for whatever, you know, twisted motivation, he decided to come back to the fatherland just to check it out and reminisce. But I I, I have a really hard time wrapping my mind around, well, what do you do when that thing that you lived is gone for good reason, but it was also part of your identity? I, 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 I don't know. This is going to sound extremely disconnected when I start, but I I, I swear it's connecting. Um, a few Please nights go right ago, ahead. I love this nights, kind of thing. <laughs> a few nights ago, I put on a, on the the Bob Ross playlist to go to sleep with, right? <laughs> nice, and uh, nice. when I woke up the next morning, I'd gone, I had gone. I I think I had what uh, ASMR'd myself like eight episodes. I was subliminally Bob Rossing myself. Anyway, uh, the point beautiful. is, I'm, I'm yep. not sure how much you know about the man's history, but before he was a very chill painter on PBS, he was a drill instructor. So his job oh, for wow. a decade or more was screaming in people's faces and hazing, not killing them. I'm not trying to convince no, 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 at all. But um, once he retired from the military, he was like, I'm not yelling at anyone ever again. <laughs> like, like that experience of dehumanizing people, not murdering them wholesale, but just yeah, yeah. being in the business of dehumanizing people had enough on him that um, the joy of painting is sort of the response to a, wow. a wow. I guess a normal person version of this where you're asked to do kind of bad things because even yesterday um, I had a class it's a bunch of six seven year olds and I hear them in the other the Japanese teachers room they're screaming and going nuts and um, I, I go and 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 I said, okay, it's time for class. And you know, a six-year-old girl just screams in my face. I was kind of like, oh just, my I, God. I had to go kind of drill instructor for a minute because I'm like, okay, if I go drill instructor now and just, yeah. you know, like uh, scare the bejesus out a little bit, the class will be fine, which which mostly was. I had one kid who couldn't right. sit in his chair, but otherwise it was, <laughs> like, it was just a, sometimes a little bit of that, you know, yeah. controlled. Yeah. Again, I, I wasn't pissed off. You know, you do the, the, the Vulcan version where you, uh, you just put on the display, but you're not feeling it, right? <laughs> right, right, right. So, See, so, and I thought I thought a bunch of you know a room full of Japanese six year olds would be very well behaved. Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> they they don't they don't really break them down to junior high. <laughs> okay, okay, good to know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, just for me, I I was like, okay, I need to put on this little act, but 
I guess that was the thing, like we were saying, it was like maybe weird comedy at the start that we're seeing him do his thing at the beginning, but he's so gleeful about it. He's so happy that he's doing it. Whereas yeah. I was like, I, I don't really want to yell at a kid and make them apologize to me, but it, this is a means to an end. And right, I, they right. did just scream in my face. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's uh, very true. Yeah, yeah I, I, I guess it's like how much emotion is backing what you do in this and this captain is just so gleeful about what he did, which is again, yeah. he didn't, he didn't kill him hard enough. He should have killed him and felt bad about, it, I guess it's the, <sighs> maybe that's, yeah. the I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm going to rephrase the question a little bit and just say, did, did Luntz go through the twilight zone in this episode? Uh, he's yeah, really the only I, character. So did he go right. through the twilight zone? Right, right. I, I mean, I, I guess for any character, I mean, th th this is what's so interesting about the Twilight Zone is there are so many episodes that just deal very directly with fate. And very often it, it's, well, it, it could be either what is cosmically justified coming to that person <laughs> or, or it's something, you know, twisted and unexpected that comes to that person person you know maybe maybe they didn't deserve maybe maybe it's very fatalistic and in, in a certain way but this is one of those times where you know the universe is offering a kind of uh a kind of fate a kind of justice to him uh that is very satisfying for us the audience and is very satisfying for the people that he wronged in his life there has to be a thing like the twilight zone for lutes to go through in order to be able to literally face the ghosts of his past and literally be confronted by the people that he victimized in his past. Um, he, you know, by what we can put together of this story, he escaped the allied liberation of the camp. In fact, Becker was the last person that he killed when he was trying to get out of the camp or when, when he sensed that the Americans were close by he escaped being tried at Nuremberg and he escaped Europe and he went to live somewhere in South America for the last 17 years. So he has escaped all these points where he would have been held accountable for what he did. So now you have to have a thing like the twilight zone come along. <laughs> you, you have to have this thing for our own sense of justice and morality in the universe to be able to take him force him to be confronted by the souls of the people that he wronged, even though that was a very small room. And we're, we're talking about thousands probably that, that he perpetrated. Um, so yes, he is the one who went through the twilight zone. Becker and people like Becker are sort of stuck in the twilight zone. Maybe this is the thing that gets them out of it. Maybe they can rest peacefully now that this job is done, or maybe they have more to go. I'm not sure. Um, but yes, yeah, he he is the one who went through because he had to go through. I want to replace, for, for my answer, I want to not replace, uh, move the location of the Twilight Zone a bit. So okay. I, I'd like to go with, he went to this, he returned to the scene of his crimes yeah. It actually went nuts over two hours. Like 
that's all him. The Twilight oh, Zone is simply yeah. him deciding to go back to the scene of his crime. Why would he do that? <laughs> yeah, that that is pretty twisted. I, I like but the see, idea that the Twilight Zone nudges him, and then it, yeah. it's it's him that is doing this to himself because he has to. Yeah. See, I I like that. I mean, the Twilight Zone is the kind of show where I like to. You know, I kind of turn off my scientific analytical mind and I just think like, okay, there is this supernatural thing, the Twilight Zone that sort of, you know, sweeps people toward this, you know, fatalistic justice <laughs> that, that they are owed. Um, but I'm really glad that you brought it up the way that you did because, to, and we've had this conversation before many times, like to me, the uh, non-supernatural believer or supernatural non-believer that i am like i like to think that that is the thing that happens to that guy's brain chemistry is that he has spent 17 years just running from his crimes that eventually even if the authorities don't catch up with him his own psyche will catch up with him whatever little glimmer was in his brain uh, that has any sense that what he did was a horror, uh, then it will force him into madness. So I really like that interpretation too. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's obviously playing a Twilight Zone imagery in his in his experience at the camp too. So uh, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not, not I'm not saying this is a non Twilight Zone episode. Just that, yeah, sometimes it, you want to you know stare reality in the face a little bit when reality is too real. Yeah. Well, but you know what, that, that is the kind of thing that, yeah, whether, you know, whether we can chalk it up to like a, a supernatural intervention or not, that is the kind of thing that we all do. We walk into a place where we were before. And as those memories flood back, we see those things. So how could he not walk into that courtyard and see those gallows? And then picture the people who were there. So that that is a very naturalistic thing to happen. Where it goes off the deep end is when they start talking back to him. Yeah. So usually at this point, I'm like, do they deserve it? Which my my note, <laughs> quoting you a little bit, is you could call this episode "Bonk Bonk on the Head," but it's probably the most <laughs> necessary "Bonk Bonk on the Head." So I actually want to change this question a little bit too because. Um, coming up so i don't i really feel like i i don't even feel comfortable asking that question in this episode so is it possible to grant this guy forgiveness oh see and again you, you're asking the questions that i ask myself and ah, that's where i go back to this thing about how do we deal with people who had wrong ideas bad ideas made their way through it do we write them off entirely and say that they are unforgivable, they can't change, therefore they have to be put away or driven to madness or whatever? Yes. I mean, I, I'm not advocating that people should not be punished because people do need to be punished and justice needs to be served. Um, I think what this episode does very effectively is serve, like I was saying before, as that kind of sense of justice for us, for the people who escaped military justice at the time and legal justice at the time. So it, 
he deserves his madness because he deserves he deserves at least to have gone through being confronted by what he did being confronted by the voices of the people that he wronged um is that justice well i i i think it is for the people who need to witness that yeah i think it's important that he doesn't just die at the end right oh yeah Um, Yeah. uh, for another star trek reference it seems his brain has now snapped himself into the uh, mirror universe's agonizer for you know for for the rest of his however long he lives so which yeah i I mean I, i guess that's justice uh I mean, I'm saying, okay, we execute some Nazi war criminals. I'm like, I don't know. Do we? I mean, I'm pretty anti-death penalty, so I'm like, should we execute yeah. anybody? I mean, <laughs> well, and, and and I am too. Yeah, and and you know, again, you're getting into very complicated things about like what is their psychology, what is their motivation for so many of the people who said they were just following orders. Well, what if some of them were? What if a lot of them weren't? You know, it, you can't truly know somebody else's mind in that sense. Um, so I, I I like the idea that madness means that he actually mentally has to confront what he did. Like, there's the breaking point. It was so easy for the first, however old he is, let's say he's about 45. You know, let's say that for the first 45 years of his life, he didn't have to care and he, he didn't care about the people that he tortured and murdered. But now, if he lives another 40 years plus, now he is going to be haunted by that. That sense of justice is that that will be in his head. Now, he will be institutionalized, so he can't be out on the street, fortunately. Um, he will be institutionalized, and that will be the tape playing in his head all day long is feeling in a very visceral by the way those scenes of him kind of stumbling out of the the what do they call it the detention room and then you know stumbling across the courtyard uh those were very visceral and you just think like okay he's going to be feeling that now for the rest of his life you know maybe that's fair yeah several weeks ago we covered the the arrival which had the uh plane inspector who had it seemed i mean by end of he he had been basically like delusion dazed going around the uh, airport for the past 15 years because he couldn't solve a case um, yeah. which is kind of the opposite yeah. like that guy you feel bad he got driven to madness you know yeah right he, he just kind of right. yeah he, he didn't do his job or I mean, he probably did do his job right he just didn't have the um the end result he wanted so that's the opposite where you feel bad for that guy but yeah this guy you're like well it's, it's, he's, he's where he needs to be now, I guess, because of, yeah. of, I mean, yeah. I don't know. Can he learn from that experience in, in the metaphysical sense of the word? I don't know. Um, <laughs> in, in, the, in the nuts and bolts mechanical universe sense of the word, yeah, that's just, again, it's not revenge. It's just justice. Right. right. Um, it almost feels flippant to ask about the tripometer in this episode, but uh, I ask in every episode. <laughs> so let's tripometer it from zero to five. <laughs> oh, man. Here's the thing. I could answer that question as either a five or a zero. It it is either one of those things (laughs) because yes, it is trippy 
first of all, it, it is trippy to spend half an hour with this character. It is trippy to just have laid bare his psychology for half an hour. That That is, again, this episode would not be written today. It would not be produced today. It would not resemble this at all. So it is a trippy experience to just go through the story with him. At the same time, I would say that it is a zero because this is so utterly real. Like there is not a science fiction twist to this at all. This is just a person rightfully haunted by the horrors of his past. And, and to the point that it drives him to madness. I, I don't think that there is a way that I can feel sympathy for Lutz now, but I can definitely see the tragedy of his life in so many ways. It was tragic before, and it's going to be nothing but tragic now. And thank goodness, like I said, he's out of circulation in the rest of the world. Yeah, that yeah. was a bad answer. That's a bad <laughs> answer because I didn't answer your question. Um, I, I honestly don't know where to land. But you know what? I'm going to come back and I'm going to say that it's zero, that it, it's not trippy. It is just harsh reality. Yeah. No, one, I, I I was about to bring up another point that I realized might be a little spoilery. So I'm going to sit on that. Maybe talk to you when we're <laughs> finished with this. Um, okay. But um, okay. No, I was, we've had more and more episodes recently that are, it's a zero or a five. Uh, the silence is, oh. it was definitely one where you're like, in that one, we were like, oh, this is intense. This is dark. <laughs> and uh, that doesn't hold a candle to this one. Um, right. So, right. I'm going to give it a negative five. It's a really bad trip. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is a bad trip if you're Lutz. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, do you have any other final points you want to throw out on this one? No, just I, I, I think we covered everything that I was thinking about it. I, I would just say, uh, well, actually, two things. Um, one, uh, if you read the trivia at IMDb, it is woefully inaccurate. <laughs> so if you watch this episode, please do a little bit of your uh, your own research about Dachau and about the Nuremberg trials and people like Lutz. I mean, you could say that he is very loosely based on any number of, uh, of uh, SS who were stationed at these concentration camps. Um, I think this episode is required viewing. It, it, it is a terrific episode of the Twilight Zone. And there are many episodes of the Twilight Zone that are influenced by Rod Serling's experience in World War II and the cultural experience of World War II, because you know we're 15 years away from it at this point and still picking up the pieces in the late 50s, early 60s. Um, but I think just as a piece of television, this also is required viewing because it is produced, directed, and acted so well. I love the efficiency of the Twilight Zone. That is a word that I've used on your show many times because they get across so much in a half an hour. Um, and there's nothing wasted in this episode. And I just so appreciate the harsh reality of what's in here. It, it's not one that you can just kind of walk away and go like, oh, it was a weird alien thing. And there's interesting metaphors about life. Like, no, there, there's no metaphor here. It, it, it just is what happened 
played out in this very interesting way. So um, I, I highly encourage it. I don't think you can marathon this episode. I don't think you should watch this one like in a run of several Twilight Zone episodes. No, I think you got to no, no, isolate no, 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 this no. one. Yeah. Because um, you could, you know, some episodes uh, circling this one. We got the Midnight Sun, the Passerby. I mean, you can just like let them roll yeah. by, watch a few. It's fun. Yeah. You know, do something yeah. else. But th this one sort of it requires your attention and requires your thought. Yeah. And uh, you can't just, you know, binge it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny. At the end of this, I, I watched the little. Uh, you know, the Rod Serling intro for next week for the Midnight Sun. And that's always an episode where it's going like, oh, okay, I remember that one. I don't need to watch it again. <laughs> you know, I like. I think it's a good episode. Well, I think they're all good episodes, but uh, that's one that I just, I kind of remember the beats and I'm just like, yeah, okay. But this one, like you said, this one requires attention. Just a spoiler because it's yeah. next week, but that's my spoiler, so I can do it. Mid Midnight Sun actually <laughs> is maybe my favorite episode or in my top five, but. Um, oh, right on. Okay, Mark, well, then I have to listen no, to it. No, no, Mark yeah. is on with me for that one. And he, yeah. he notes at some point, it's like, you say it's your favorite, but you keep punching holes into it. You know, it's like <laughs> I'm just trying to test yeah. it. <laughs> right, right. 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 Test it. But I, I think that's important. Yeah. You're like, well, I really like yeah. this. Um, Why and, and why, you know, what are the flaws that I don't care about? So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I, I love it when we do that on Mission Log. Like, we will just sit there and poke holes in an episode and get to the end and go like, okay, but this was really enjoyable. <laughs> you know, that's fine. That's totally yeah, yeah. fine. You yeah. know, there's been once or twice when you got, well, I thought that was a dumpster fire of an episode and I listened to your yeah. conversation. I think you guys agree. And at the end, no, no, I actually liked him. Like, oh, yeah. okay, interesting. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah it, it's kind of hard to throw shade on Death's Head Revisited. So um, yeah. again, I mean, our this is probably the least trippy conversation I've had on this particular podcast. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I guess this is Aaron about uh, May for Mission Log. So so any idea? Uh, any? Um, uh, let's see. Not sure where we will be. We just recorded Coda. Uh, that I think went really well. That that kind of spoiler had like the opposite effect where we both sat there and went okay wow this is a great episode like everything is firing on all cylinders the the writing is interesting the twists are good the production value is good the acting is great eh, but does it really hold up <laughs> you know <laughs> like you sound like a hypocrite saying that you know but uh that'll be out in about three weeks so yeah coming up around the same time coming up early may uh and then i have to get to work on the next one so, yeah. And then uh, by end of April, early May, we'll be done with our Picard coverage and just going into uh, like a recap and probably a special guest celebrity interview after that. So join us on Mission Blog Live for that. Alrighty. As for this, it's Time Enough Podcast. It's Time Enough Pod on Twitter and Facebook. We hang out on Patreon at Podcastio, Podcastius, where you can get episodes early at a little support to pay the bills that sort of thing uh we've just started the films and filth podcast where we're looking at the top 100 by on imdb and the bottom 100 alternating between if things are films or filth um one yeah, of our that, hosts, that is the most inspired bizarre idea and i love it and one of our hosts hates rating systems so <laughs> <laughs> just, but it's, it's just a, it's just a weird arbitrary list to follow it's fun yeah, um, yeah why not uh, I call it Disney. We talk about 
weird magic and possible conspiracy theories in Disney from two guys who like these films, by the way. We're not trying to nice. put holes into it. We're just like, hey, what's here? Um, love it. I love <laughs> video it. game stuff with Luke Loves Pokemon, Hyrule Field Report about the Zelda games and the game game show, which is a couple of British guys uh, quizzing each other and screaming at each other and insulting. Actually, you know what? There's not that much screaming, more just insulting, I guess, is the thing. That's fair. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, geez, I, I I can't do a witty sign off for this episode. So I, I no. guess I'll just say, see you next week. 